is the history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazman To hear what they all have to say um, welcome to the Kick to Kick podcast. We are here for a special episode today to talk about the Collingwood machine. Um, with us we have Michael Roberts, official Collingwood historian, author of many, many books about Collingwood. Um, thank you for joining us, Michael. No worries. Happy to be here. Um, fantastic. So you've written lots of books, including In Black and White, Champions of Collingwood, The Machine, Collingwood at Vic Park, is The Mightiest Magpies... <laughs> How many books have you written? Uh, I've written or edited, I think, close to 20. Wow. Um, most of them about footy, um, all but one of them about sport, uh, and most of the ones about footy about Collingwood. Yeah. So <laughs> a fairly narrow subject range, but I, I go deep, not wide. Fantastic. Um, so we usually have a standard few questions we ask our guests. The first one, obviously, is who you barrack for, but we know it's Collingwood. I think I might have given the game away on that <laughs> yeah, one. You did. Um, we'd like to know why. What's the story behind that? Uh, it's a weird story, and it's just pure fluke, um, accident of history. My brother was an Essendon supporter. Oh, smart man. And um, <laughs> Fine man. Um, and he took me to my first game of footy, and it was a game between Essendon and Collingwood. And being the painful kid brother that I was, um, I, of course, went for the team against uh. my brother. <laughs> um, and f- with the same team as the girl next door who'd come with us to the game, so that's what started me on Collingwood, and my only memory of that first game is walking into the ground and being is it Vic Park? shocked. No, I think it might have been Windy Hill. Okay. Um, but walking into the ground and being stunned that there was no commentary because the only footy I'd seen to that was point on. was on the television. <laughs> so you're just thinking and, it was going to be on the loudspeakers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I thought Mike Williamson and Ted Whitten and Butch Gale would be coming across the loudspeakers, but there was nothing. And I'm like, what's going on? I had no clue. But that's what started me following, following <laughs> Collingwood. And then I stayed with it because it was in the middle of that glorious Bob Rose coached era, the late 60s, early 70s. So it was a, Happy with the choice. It was a pretty magic time to be a Collingwood supporter. <laughs> mm. Tragic, yeah. but magic. Yeah. <laughs> um, so who was your favourite player? Who, whose number did you have on your back? Nothing imaginative. Peter McKenna, yeah. number six. Um, it was the number I wore in junior footy. Oh, yeah. um, and like every other Collingwood supporter of the time, you, you had to love Peter. Um, and then you have the great joy and the rare joy of meeting him later in life and discovering he's just one of those heroes who lives up. To the expectation. Yeah. Which doesn't happen often. Does not happen often. <laughs> and cool. he was he is an absolute ripper. One of the nicest guys I've ever met through footy. Um, which, given he was my childhood hero, was, was a very cool thing. And then... After he retired, Phil Carmen came in. Yep. So I turned the number six upside <laughs> down and made it number nine. Um, and he was who I followed after that. But yeah, Peter McKenna was huge for me. Um, and last question, best game you've been to? Um, well, of course you say the, the grand finals or the, the winning ones. But the best, probably the best game I've been to, one as a kid anyway, which is sort of when they're kind yeah. of, they have a bit more impact. There was this wild game at Victoria Park against Essendon um, in 72, I think, and it was Tuddy's return, Tuddy's first game back after he'd gone to Essendon. And it was just, it was wild and the place was heaving and near where I stood, the the gates on the the back there had been broken. So more and more people kept swarming in in and... Uh, one of the team's banners, one of the other cheer squads ran through the banner and so the other opposition cheer squad ran over and <laughs> ran through the other banner. There were floggers that were set alight behind the Yarra Falls end, <laughs> which ended up with floggers being banned. It was just this febrile atmosphere. It was magnificent. <laughs> and it was pretty even at half time. and then we went ballistic and kick, ended up kicking 30 goals. McKenna kicked oh. 13. And it was just the wildest day of footy. Um, I can... Yeah, everything kind of, it was, and it could never happen now. It's too yeah. sanitised these yeah. days, but it was just 
wild footing. When that cheer squad member, I still can't remember whether it was our guy who ran through the Essendon banner <laughs> or vice versa, but it just set the tone for the whole, the whole day. <laughs> and Tuddy came out and he was half cheered and half pantomime booed. And oh, it was just, it was a wild day. It was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. I love that. Yeah. Um, so how did you get involved with Collingwood as their historian? Uh, it started in 1991 when I, the club centenary was coming up in 92 and I was working in government at that point, um, having worked as, I was working as a press secretary media advisor for government ministers and the department where I was working had a former Collingwood player called Errol Hutchison as a uh, within that department. He was a board member at Collingwood at that time. And I had this idea about wanting to write a book uh, for the footy club on the stories of the greatest players. So the 100 greatest players for 100 years. So I the, the century of the best? That's a century of the best. And so I pitched the idea to Errol and he really liked it and took it to the board and they agreed. So I took a year off from work um, and wrote the book. And in time for the centenary and it was just awesome and I loved that so much and that sort of got me involved with the club and from that moment on I sort of I stayed involved um, partially you know part historian uh, part doing work for them with their magazines and stuff um, and then five years ago um, sort of took on a, a formal role as historian, but also as the club's history and archives manager, a sort of a part-time role down there, organising sort of everything to do with, with history. Which I imagine will be a hell of a lot at Collingwood. It is massive, <laughs> and it's it's huge, but it's like the dream gig. Yeah. But it's also because people like you have put in so much effort to finding all this stuff yeah. as well. Yeah, well, and it's, it's not just finding items. Like, yeah. I was a footy collector for a long time, and that's... You know, that's great. The thrill of the chase, the getting of the collection and the uh, stuff that various collectors and clubs have uncovered over the last 30 odd years is huge. But it's also the research. Yeah. So we know. Hours on Trove. Yeah, hours <laughs> on Trove. But it didn't have, we didn't have Trove yeah, until recently. So it's hours in the State Library. God, so on the, on the yeah. microfilm and all those painful readers, <laughs> the clunky readers. <laughs> I've still got RSA in my shoulder from all the turning of the bloody handles. And um, it's, but it's that research that various football historians have done over the last 30 years that has completely transformed where we were as an industry in terms of its relationship with history to where we are now. Yeah, yeah. There's so much more we're, we're working with um, than we ever have. And it, but the hunt continues and we're, you know, across clubs, across the AFL, league-wide, we're all finding new stuff all yeah. the time. And the search, you know, I wrote those stories on those hundred players, but Collingwood's had twelve hundred and forty odd over the journey, and I want to write stories About, on every yeah. single one of those, wow. um, including guys who played one game for us in eighteen ninety three, and that's a challenge. But yeah. it's yeah, I I still get a real buzz out of that. So where where do you think like that? love of the history of the game came from originally? I literally have no idea. Yeah, it just sort of <laughs> um, sneaks up on you. Yeah, look, it does. And I mean, I, I was never a big history student or anything at, at school or uni. I, I did psychology and I did law and other stuff, but not history. And yet my interest in football has never been purely about stats. Yeah, There are people like, you know, the great Cole Hutchison and others yeah. who are driven by statistical records and first and all that kind of stuff and I'm interested in that but my passion is sort of the Stories social history behind, yeah, yeah and, the, and the stories the storytelling we can definitely relate to that yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very much the kind of stuff you guys are all about it's the culture surrounding footy and everything that makes it so unique yeah and then the stories of whether the whether somebody's played 300 games or one game for your footy club yeah they're, they're, a, they're part of the Collingwood story in the way I look at it. And so their story deserves to be told. Yeah. And, and I guess that that's the thing. I went into journalism and journalism is all about stories. Um, and I think that's where that love of stories came from. The interest in social history, nah, it's, just, <laughs> it's just evolved over time yeah. is something that that's the bit that, yeah. that sings for me. And that, that way that the... Uh the game is placed in the world that it was in at the time as well is, is fascinating, isn't it? It is, and it's it's huge. It's it's a central part of the foot of the story of Australian football, yeah. and particularly the VFL. And you look back at 
yeah, the old days. It's not just about glorifying the past and and living there. It's it's a it's a huge part of the story, and you can't look at the AFL today without examining where it's come from. Yeah. And that's true of of every aspect of footy history. You know, it, clubs. You can't say what who you are and what you stand for as a footy club without realizing and understanding where you've come from. Yeah, yeah. Which is as you said, why these guys, you, as you and and the other club historians. It's so important to understand that history as to where where they sit now. And to keep it alive and to make it relevant. And that's the thing that all of our historians at the different clubs fight with all the time, is that it's not just about celebrating the past, because you do get people who come into footy clubs from time to time and say, you know, damn tradition, get rid of it, it's not relevant. Our job is to make it relevant, to make it interesting and to make it clear that there is... There is, a, it's relevant what happened 80 years ago. Maybe not directly to this week's game, but in the way we see our footy club, yeah. the way we pitch ourselves to the fans, yeah. what we want to be. Yeah. That's all part of the story. And yeah. someone someone checks a goalpost in 2019. Suddenly you're looking back at 1924 yeah, exactly. <laughs> as to why that is outlawed. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And that's it. And you look at, and as you're saying, the the relationship that that supporters and players also have with the club that they play with has to be built on on that history, really. Well, and that's the thing, is that it's only... So what makes Collingwood different from the Western Bulldogs, different from mm. Richmond, different from Essendon? It's our shared history. Yeah. It's, it's the shared history and experiences that make Collingwood Collingwood. And I just... I keep saying that to people again and again and again. We're not all the same. We've got... And that what makes the clubs different is what they've been through. Yeah. yeah. And part of the reason why they are the way they are today. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And why the fans are the way they are. And so different while there are a lot of similarities in footy fans and how they follow the game, how they see the game, there are definitely differences within the tribes, um, or between the tribes about about their outlook. And that's shaped by the sort by their club histories, um, what they've experienced and you know, why does St Kilda have only one flag? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's there's no logic to that, that a no. club that's been around there that long, there's something in their culture, there's something in that DNA that won't allow them... Yeah, to, to get it done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And long may that continue. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With, apolo- with apologies to Russell Holmesby there, St yeah. Kilda historian. But. Yeah, that's our, our little thing we always say, they... Whenever they've got, you know, two out of three things right, they just sprinkle a little bit of some Kilda dust and manage to stuff it all up yeah. somehow. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, there's plenty of other clubs I'd be happy to see keep doing that too. <laughs> yeah. Carlton, yeah. primarily. Yes. Maybe it can be angel dust. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. Oh, I like it. <laughs> Um, so we've got you in today to talk. We've just finished talking about the uh, 1930 season, so the fourth of Collingwood's machine years. So we, we wanted to talk to you about that machine years because one of the books you've written is called The Machine, an inside story yeah. of football's greatest team. Um, so we've got you here to talk about that. Yeah, we've loved talking about each year as it came, but to talk about that time as a whole is a yeah. whole other thing. Well, so. it's an extraordinary period in, in football, uh, in Melbourne history. And in Collingwood, yeah. um, obviously. So it was a it was a pretty freaky time. Um, so leading into 1927, they lost the 1925 and 26 grand finals. Yep. What effect did that have on the club at that time? Look, the 25 one... Because both years they'd finished on top. Yeah. The 25 one, though, didn't kill us. Um, we'd been out of finals action for two years. And yeah. so I think everyone was just relieved that we were back. Yeah. 26 killed us yeah there was an absolute expectation that we were going to win that and when we didn't uh there was you know near riots it was the early equivalent of richmond you know burning richmond fans burning their seasons tickets yeah <laughs> there was real anger amongst yeah. the supporter base and so the committee the playing group the whole club was under pressure to do something dramatic in 27 mm. um which they duly did because they dumped the captain and three other players like two weeks before the start of the season. Yeah, yeah so on, so Charlie Tyson getting the, the, the flick on the eve of the season, um, was it the right call? Well, history says yes. Um, <laughs> Charlie Tyson would say no. Yeah. But bottom line is Tyson was a, was a good footballer and he was a good captain. Sid Coventry, the man who replaced him, was a great footballer 
and a great captain. He wasn't at that stage, though, Sid. That was a gamble, obviously. It was a gamble, but um, he won the Brownlow that year, so they, they were a pretty good judge. Yeah. Um, and they knew that he was ready. Um, in hindsight, they potentially could have, you know, would Charlie Tyson still have had a role to play in that team? Potentially, if mm. they'd dropped him as captain, but maybe he didn't want to. And there were three other players that went at the same time. It was yeah. it was ruthless, but it was more the timing that surprised. It was only a week before the start yeah, of the season. Yeah. And they'd just decided, that obviously, that they'd seen enough. Because he'd been training in the preseason with yeah. him as well. Yeah, and playing the practice matches. Um, but yes, history says it was absolutely the right call because Sid Coventry has a place, not just in Collingwood history, I think, but as one of the great VFL captains. Yeah. Um, not as I say, not just for us, but again, you know, you, yeah. you look at his leadership record; it's extraordinary. Yeah. And he then went on to be president of our footy club, as well, taking over it at a really difficult time, and showing his leadership skills again in a completely different role after the the, the craziness of the massive split of 1950. Yeah. He healed that club again, and. That I mean, so he's got the sort of the two bookends of his service to Collingwood, massive contribution, and I think still underrated as a footballer, despite the fact mm-hmm. he won a Brownlow medal and a couple of Copeland trophies. Yeah. What do you think would have happened if they hadn't won the 1927 Grand Final? It's interesting. They played such good footy throughout the year. I suspect he still would have been given more time. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but three runners up in a in a row would have been a very I don't think that the committee could feasibly have have sacked another captain and gone back to the start again. They would have had to have stuck with him, but it certainly would have would have shattered, would have dented the confidence about whether they were on the right path or not. Yeah. Whereas winning the the flag in twenty seven completely vindicated what had happened six months earlier, yeah. and kind of put a stop to any questions. There was. You know, everything was all right with the world again, so there was no second-guessing of the committee's decision. Yeah. Was there ever any um, any talk before 1927 about, uh, like, the coaching position? Was that ever t- a tenuous position or that was... He was no, safe as houses? Jock was always pretty much safe as houses. I mean, certainly after the machine, it was, yeah. he could write your own ticket. <laughs> but even then, he'd won a couple of flags. He was highly regarded. Um, 23 and 24 were regarded pretty much as blips on the radar. Yeah. But they wouldn't have wanted to continue that. for much longer. Yeah. But being back in grand finals again, you know, we clearly weren't far away from it, but we needed was, something to change. We needed something, yeah. particularly after 26. There was That was a, a, a bitter pill to swallow. Yeah. But obviously the pill that they kind of needed to swallow because then look what happened. And that's the thing, you know, it, it spurred them into action that nobody thought was going to happen. It was... You know, the media tended to report things in a very understated way in those days, as you guys would appreciate. Yeah, yeah. Um, but even they were were stunned yeah. by the fact that the captain had been dumped the week a week before, before the season. Yeah. I don't think that had ever happened before. Not that I'm aware no. of, no. And and certainly not at a at a club like Collingwood. No. And it, so, of course, it and led to... a successful to, club that had been yeah. in the grand final. You'd think you'd be safe. And, of course, it led to all sorts of rumours about what had actually happened. Mm, yeah, I was, yeah, I was going to lead on to that. So there was obviously some sort of whispers and belief outside about that he'd, you know, taken a dive yeah. the previous year. Was, was there any sort of thing... Was, thinking inside the club that, that is, that's what had happened or was it was it... Look, there were there were clearly some people around who felt that that had to be an explanation. Yeah, uh, you know, and he was seen driving around yeah. town in a new <laughs> yeah, car soon afterwards, and all that kind of stuff. So there were certainly people who thought it. But Richard Stremsky, who wrote that great book Kill for Collingwood, back in the eighties, and he had had a chance to interview more of the people who were still around oh, from wow. that time, yep. and he did the most forensic examination of it and came to the conclusion that Tyson was unfairly maligned yeah. and that in in fact all that had happened was that it had got to the end of the practice matches and Collingwood had made a ruthless football decision that he had taken them as far as he, he was going taken, to. Yep. Also, he'd been concussed in the and he'd been concussed. Final. Yeah, and it, and it, you right. know, yeah, and that concussion now. Yeah, and that that in fact had been 
a far more logical explanation of his below-par performance yeah. than, you know, any nefarious sort of suggestion of yeah. having taken a bribe. So the odds are it didn't happen. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a, yeah, there's a simpler explanation and a much more benign one. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, one of the other driving factors was George Connor as well in 1927. Um, in the in the, in the machine book, you write about the little bulletin board messages he'd leave the club. I, that, I thought that was quite important. He played quite a role. Look, he did, and it's that. funny because George Connor has a um, a checkered history at Collingwood. Well, He's, as you get to 1930, you realise that. But yeah, early in the early days, you... and he was involved around, in and around the club for quite a long time as a committeeman, a secretary, and before that, just as a as a passionate local supporter and real estate agent. Um, I've got a. One of the bits of memorabilia I, I did have um, was uh, a fixture list from 1912, I think, issued by George Connor's real estate company. Um, and so, they yeah. still do it these days. I know. <laughs> yeah. So um, before, you know, the kind of embezzlement um, thing that engulfed him at the end of 29, in 27, he was kind of like a almost like an official cheerleader mm. within the club. And he'd put up bulletin board notices every week that the players and the staff would see. But he w- and he wouldn't let them get ahead of themselves. No, and it was about bringing them back to earth. And when they were doing well, it was about, you know, when they didn't have a good game, it would be like, no, 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 you need to do this. And if I was a coach, I would have actually been pretty annoyed with him <laughs> um, because, you know, it's the kind of thing that officials perhaps shouldn't be involved yeah. with. But um, he uh, he he wasn't a shrinking violet, George. So he was quite happy to uh, to to put stick his nose up. But um, it was it became a regular feature, but only of that year, really. Yeah. Um, think, oh, sorry, do you think maybe that had something to do with he, he might have felt that they did get a bit ahead of themselves the previous year, thinking that they? I may think have potentially, had it? yeah. I mean, I think there was a general acceptance that Collingwood had felt that, but not just the players, that the club as a whole had felt that the 26 premiership was already yeah they deserved it after missing out and that and that they yeah. they felt they were the better team and yep. they felt that they would beat Geelong and i think in the end they just thought you know the, the, sorry the loss to Geelong in 25 was bearable mm. loss to Melbourne in 26 was not they considered that that was a game that they had won that already planned celebrations yeah. Yeah. and stuff like that and i think yeah, I think it's entirely possible that George thought, no, we've got to keep this going all the way through and here's something that I can do to kind of keep that. But he was also pumping them up at other times yeah. and, and keeping them going to the finish line. As I said, it was sort of like an internal cheerleader. <laughs> um, one of the other important parts of that season was the trip they took across to Perth as well. It seemed to really bond the team and, and uh, they solidified their quest, I yep. guess. Yeah, they Apart did. From the fact they came back a little bit overweight and out of form. Yes, I think it was quite an important thing for the team. It was, and and Glenn McFarlane, my co-author on the machine, he had spoken to his grandfather played in the machine team, and he'd spoken to various machine members and written to them over the years. And I've spoken to a few, and all of the ones that we talked to say that that trip to Perth was a major factor in the first flag. Um, because, yeah, it, there was a short-term cost in the, by the, when they came back because they had two weeks off yeah. to get over there and back and play some exhibition games during an uh, interstate carnival yeah. break late in the season. So they lost the first game back. But afterwards, the spirit within the group yeah. was completely different and took them not just through the 27 flag but 28, 29, yeah. 30. Yeah. So you, you could all, you know, that... Is kind of the starting point of the actual machine, isn't it? That sort of that solidification of yep. That team. That's when they all came together as a group and with something special. And everybody says that that trip, spending you know time together on the train and boats and mucking around. And I've yep. seen in the book we have a lot of photos of snapshots of them, you know, hooning around in yeah. the desert and on the way over. And you just you can see it. It bonded them together. It it, it produced something special that no other club had at that point. And that's something that's probably lacking a bit today, that clubs could use a trip away to, to bond. I mean, I know they go for interstate games. And they're but always it's funny. Club. No, I, it's funny. I, I think the opposite, and that I heard it the other night um, when Collingwood beat West Coast yeah. over there, and they were interviewing Brody Majacek after the game. And he's like, no, nah, I love getting away. It's great. We get away from all the stuff in Melbourne. We hang out together. 
you know, we so it's a shorter time frame okay. yeah. because everything's obviously closer and quicker yeah. and shorter yeah. now and they get on planes and they don't do trains. But it's the same principle. They get to hang out together for yeah. 48 hours yeah. and they do find it still a, a strengthening experience. And I, it's funny, I, I heard that and I thought, wow, you know, 90 years on, so different processes, and, yeah. but the same kind of principle still applies. Yeah. It's a way of bringing play. It can be a way of bringing teams and clubs together. together. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it still applies today as yeah. much as it did then. Yeah. All right, so they won 27. That moves us on to 28, where they again faced a bit of adversity. Um, there was almost a player strike. And the funny thing is, you know, we talk about the machine in terms of it being a, a unit that played for each other and together mm. and so bonded to the club and to the suburb and everything else. But, yeah, they, they went on strike. And this is, again, where Sid Coventry showed yeah. real leadership in, in preventing the players from going on strike over, over inadequate pay. Um, and you would think you've got a, a playing group that was angry enough that they were prepared to even consider this, to have a meeting to talk about it. And yet... Sid pulls them back in and goes, no, nah, we're not doing that. And they go, oh, okay, we'll just go on and win the flag. It's like you would normally think that something like that would kill any chance of a premiership yeah, that year. There'd, there'd be some bad blood yeah. in there, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there should be. All logic says, you know, that isn't the way that you go about winning a flag. And yet they just kind of rolled on like nothing had happened. It, it's extraordinary. And again, you know, you lose... Bad. Yeah, and you, you lose the secretary at the end of 29. You think... Oh, you want a solid administration? That's not going to happen in thirty. Yeah. Again, we just rolled on. Yeah. It was yeah. there was something about the quality of that playing group and the determination that they had to just keep performing at an absolutely elite level. Um, and that was in the face of something like that. You're looking and just go, wow, that's hard to. Mm-hmm. It's hard to reconcile. Yeah. It was obviously a huge part of in that just by saying that. Yeah, he, he did. He he was the one who took charge and said, no, we're not. We're not going to do this. And he held such respect from within the playing group that when Sid said that, they were like, okay, we're on board. And yeah, that, and the focus back on the footy. And that brought them back as a team as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's surprising to think, for everything we know about Sid, he's a very you know, quietly spoken, yep. quiet, you know, didn't, didn't want to say too much. So if he's speaking but up... When, but when he spoke... Yeah, everybody listened. listened. <laughs> the respect. I mean, the thing was, he was a great footballer, but as I mentioned earlier, a, an outstanding leader. Everybody respected him. Everybody loved him. Everybody admired him. And he wasn't, yeah, a, a, a Killigrew-esque ranter and raver. Um, but and he, but he wasn't as hard as Jock. Yeah. So he was a lot easier to relate to. Yep. And the players yeah. worshipped him. Absolutely worshipped him. So. What he said pretty much was law. Yeah. So was he, and I, I know later on that, you know, we talk about him being a fantastic uh, choice as a coach as well. President. Well, he almost coached. He did. they were talking about that. And he would, and look, he, he didn't have a great success at Footscray yeah. when he eventually went there. Um, but I think in a weird way, being at Collingwood would have made it hard to go to a really... A, a club that was then struggling. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like the yep. dogs. Um, that would have been a hard, because everything would have been completely yeah, different. Exactly. Yeah, And I yeah. think Sid found it pretty, he would have. Pretty hard. If he'd been able to coach at Collingwood, maybe, yeah. nobody could. Yeah. 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 But he, was he, it sounds like he was kind of a, a middleman between Jock and the team. He was able to sort of yeah. straddle that line of, As, you know. When he was captain? Yeah. Yeah, he was certainly, and the captain still had a bigger role. Well, they were then, yeah, you know, they were the field, on-field leaders. They, yeah. they weren't runners and all that sort of stuff. And so, during the game, if there were moves to be made and changes to be made, Sid would often be the one responsible yeah. for that. And the players would listen to him. And he had a very, very good footy brain from all yeah. all reports that he understood. The role he played was largely sort of that kick behind the play. And you've got to be a really good reader of the game yeah. to do that. And I think he he had a very good feel for footy. A quarterback. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, so season 28 was much the same, just business as usual, winning most games. I think they lost three and most of them by less than a goal. 
the only the other thing that stuck out to me about that season was on the uh, eve of the grand final. Jock McHale called the team together for a strategy meeting, and really changed the strategy and the way they played against um, Richmond in the grand final. And look, he'd done that. It was unusual for Jock because he did it in 1919, yeah. um, the centenary of which we're celebrating this year, um, with a change between the final and the grand final where he completely changed tactic, tactics and he did it again in 28. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but that sort of thing was actually quite unusual for Jock. He wasn't a big strategy or, or tactics man. He was much more about, his strength were much more about man management and yeah. fitness. Yeah. Judging when players were right to go and kind of being able to push their buttons to get them to perform yeah. at their best. He wasn't a big tactical guy. And yet when okay. he did pull the, the tactical button, it, was it actually seemed to work really well. But it was only, it was a last minute thing. He did it in, 27, in uh, 19, 28 and 29. Yeah, but it seemed just so innovative that he'd be doing that for the start. Like, not a lot of coaches were changing their style of play from game to game. No, and he, he didn't. No. But he did it. A couple of times when it counted to to massive effect. Yeah. But the rest of the time, he, he was pretty straight up and down the line, Jock, with what he did. It's just that when he needed to, he could pull it out. Yeah, amazing, and that you know got them the win over Richmond again. Yeah, and it was it was a it was a, a radical tactic to have, you know, um, Percy Rowe basically be brutally assaulted by Richmond players all the time, but to mm. put themselves between him and, and Gordon Coventry, yeah. allowing nuts to to kick yeah. nine or whatever it was. Yeah. So it was it was a great strategy on the day and only because of the fact that we'd played Richmond before and they had belted the living suitcase out of him. Yeah. And it was a similar thing in, in the next year as well. Yeah. It was funny, his strategy was often, when he changed strategy, it was often to combat... Something games of brutal, happened, yeah. yeah, out outright yeah. violence, and it happened a yeah. bit against Collingwood in nineteen. It happened in twenty eight and twenty nine. Yeah, and you can see, yeah, it's these other teams trying to pull obviously a fantastic team down to a dirty yeah. level. Yeah, to yeah to try and, and ease you know, the brunt of that. Oh, yeah. absolutely. That on pure football terms, Collingwood was going to beat pretty Anyone. much everybody yeah. every time. We saw it, and so <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so most of their losses around that time can. Be explained away by people knocking blokes out, yeah. basically. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah. Collingwood sometimes had to retaliate. I mean, we we're a pretty fearsome team anyway. Yeah, well, that um, I mean, that's it. I mean, when it comes down to that side of things as well, there's not many players who would have shirked a tough contest either. No, I think so. Collingwood was a pretty tough place yeah. in the 1920s. <laughs> <so. laughs> Our football has reflected that, I yeah. think. Nice. So, back to back 28 season, they, they beat Richmond in the grand final pretty comfortably in the end by 33 yeah. points. Yeah. 28 season, uh, sorry, 29 season. Harry Curtis comes out at the start of the year and he's like, "Let's go for the records. We're we're unbeatable at the moment." And he really challenged the club hugely. I mean, to come out and say we want a flag, we want to equal the record was yeah. extraordinary. And it, you know, better put everybody under notice. And that can go one of two ways. You know, it can people can go, "Oh, Christ, Implode there's a lot of pressure bit, there." Yeah. Um, but this mob just went, "Yeah, okay." We'll go off and, and we'll do that. And from the first, very first game where they kicked 13 goals yeah. straight, yeah. you know, on the day they unfurled the flag, they didn't miss a beat. Whole season, just the perfect home and away season. It's amazing to think, you know, it, as you said, it never happened today, a, a club coming out and saying, we're going, you know, for yeah. three in a row. Well, you every know, time someone does that, they have they a get, poor season. Yeah, and, exactly. they, and they'll get bagged by the yeah, media. The media's so ready it. to jump on things. I know. Yeah, no, it's just, oh, we just, we just take it week by week. That's very true. How, but, sorry. That was just, but the response of the players was just like, no, nah, we we are going out, we are doing this. We They had a settled team. There were six weeks. It was unchanged yeah. in a row. And nobody wanted to miss out. And it was this was where the machine thing came from. Just week after week, big wins after big wins, nobody looked like they could even get close. How important was Harry Curtis to the club? Look, Harry Curtis was important, but probably the, it was the stable administration overall, yeah. um, which included Harry who'd taken over in 25, 24. Um, but Bob Rush... Been yep. treasurer since 1909 and stayed treasurer till 50. Curtis stayed for 25 years. Yeah. Frank Wraith ended up coming in 30 and staying for another 20. Yeah. 
it was that stable administration that provided the basis for Jock and and everybody else around them to kind of do their thing. Yeah, not worry about what was going on over there and just concentrate yep. here. It was yep. an incredibly well-run footy club, um, financially responsible um, and with a kind of, you know, one-in-all-in kind yeah. of ethos. Um, so Harry was important, but as part of the overall administrative yeah. stability that provided the club with the stability to do what it did. Yeah. I think we saw at that time minimum payments came in. They just made me think of that. But uh, yeah. they were already well run. Yeah, and also very much equal footing. You know, Jock got the same as the players and there were no stars, even though we had plenty of them. But yeah, there but was, they... Yeah, they didn't sort of treat them... Well, they no, weren't treated that way. They were all which, e- treated equally and, and the playing group was very, you know, together and unified in, in that way. We were all yeah. all in this together and at one point when uh, Albert Collier discovered that one of the junior players wasn't getting his full amount because he'd been a reserve, yeah. um, a 19th man, rather than a fully, you know, Albert arced up and the oh, club really? had to pay the guy... Um, his full whack, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. good. That's amazing, you know, thinking of a guy who's won a Brownlow at that stage. Yep. You know, look, making sure that everyone's sort of being looked after. They did, that was yeah. part of it. And, you know, you it was you looked after the younger guys or the smaller guys or whatever, and that's what Albert did. And he was, you know, another extraordinary oh, leader. Yeah. Um, you know, we had Sid, but we also had, you know, Harry and Albert Collier, and yeah. they were they were astonishing players and leaders in their own rights as yeah. well. And as you were saying, like you can see it that that sort of it was all all for one. Very much. That, especially I think the the seminal one for me is that twenty nine grand final where they use Gordon Coventry as a as a, as a dummy. As a decoy. Like yeah. imagine trying to do that to someone who's kicked hundred and twenty goals in a season <laughs> these days. And or imagine a coach having but the it makes, balls like, to do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it yeah, makes sense. It, yeah. But yeah. And you're talking about the you know the changes in strategy. You know, you go through the home and away to season undefeated, lose the semi final, which against all the odds because Richmond go out and basically thump mm. the daylights out of you. And they so you change yeah. it. So then you, yeah, you you play Gordon as a decoy. You bring in Charlie Ahern. Yeah, to to basically to, be a bouncer. To basically <laughs> be a bouncer and to basically make sure that, you know, Sid Coventry wasn't being thumped yeah. and to go around and thump a few of his own. And then, so it's his third only game of footy and he comes in and bees one of our best players and one of the most influential, but then doesn't play again and dies of cancer yeah. 18 months later. I mean, it's, his is an extraordinary story yeah. and part of that whole, that year is just, it's a freakishly good year and it's, you know, it's almost my favourite yeah, perhaps other than 58. It's, it's As far as a football club goes, it's just like, that is ruthless start yeah. to finish. Yeah. That oh. one error. Never, just to, the, never took the foot off the accelerator. No, yeah. no. Other than that one inexplicable game near the end. Yeah. Just like the Bombers in 2000. See, it's just, there's not meant to be a perfect season. No, I, I, I quite like that there's no perfect season. Yeah, me well. too. Yeah, and I wish we could have, but then you think, Nah, it's kind of nice having that. It adds a twist to it. Yeah. And if we'd won that, there wouldn't have been the Charlie O'Hearn story. There yeah. wouldn't have yeah, been exactly. that, that you know, grand final. There wouldn't have been the redemption. It's a better story with us having lost yeah. the, and, the final. And that also brought in that that year, if I'm right, is when uh, Jock took the players to watch the Richmond game. Yeah, it? when yeah. they played Carlton. Then, yeah. which would, and we talked about this we hadn't heard many stories about players going to watch other teams at no. that stage. Like, no. And now it's the kind of the done thing. Like, you go and watch And you've got you your can. scouts and all yeah, that exactly. stuff. Yeah. But even I remember Essendon lost the 99 grand final. Sheedy made them all go to the, watch the grand... Sorry, they lost the prelim to Carlton. Yeah. Sheedy made them all go to the grand final and watch, and watch, that, watch, yeah. watch what they'd missed out on. Yeah. Yeah, see, Sheedy was always 60 years behind <laughs> us. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then we get to 1930. And they, uh, again... Want to be challenged? They want to try and break Carlton's record of three in a row, equal Essendon's four in a row from the uh, early nineties. Um, and they go out there in the middle of the depression, and they're able to to do it. But, yeah, but not as easily. It's no, and this was the the first year where you saw the edifice starting to crumble. Yeah. You could just see the cracks appearing. Yep. Um, they lost games they weren't losing and previously for the first time. Yeah, since twenty six. Yep, they. They didn't play 
as well. They weren't the all-conquering... I mean, they still finished mm. on top. They were still a great team. Yeah. And that was the year that somebody coined the Bradmans a football yeah. phrase, um, the Herald Ryder Kickero. But they weren't as all-powerful as they'd been yep. in 29. And you can't sustain that no. indefinitely. Uh, but that's where I think... That's why, in a way, I love 1930, because it was like they they got to the final game and they're behind at half-time. Yeah. And somehow... In their, you know, their their coaches at home in yeah. sick in bed with the flu, yeah. and they find a way to go. We've got an hour of footy left. Yeah, let's let's you know let's put the, the foot to the floor. <laughs> yeah, and somehow they go and kick eight goals in the third quarter, and you know that's a quarter of footy. I wish I wish I could have seen yeah. because I think that was like the machine giving its last kind last yeah. kind of gasp, yeah. and you know. It was never the same again, obviously, after that. But they found something to win that fourth flag and that place in history. I love that. Yeah, I think it's, it's a great amazing. story. Do, do you think um, there were any was any tension at the beginning of the year with Sid trying to get the job at Footscray? Look, again, you'd, it's a bit like the players' strike. You would think so, yeah. but there's no evidence of it. No. It's, all, it's almost like, you know, we talk about footballers today being much more comfortable with you know their own teammates moving everyone kind of shrugs and goes oh yeah you know we should be annoyed that so and so is wanting to go to Adelaide for you know X dollars but nobody is the players aren't back then everybody talks about player loyalty and we're all and and, you know Sid was the leader but here he is wanting to go and he tried again years later nobody seems to have held it against him so logically you would think it should have had an effect but it didn't do you think maybe it had maybe the it lessened the effect the fact that the depression had just started and there's kind of that that feeling maybe he's just doing it to look after absolutely and I think you know that's why players left yeah you know Albert Collier left the next year to spend two years in Tassie because he could get Get work Yeah. yeah and I don't think in that you know, we had players leave, even in the machine period, we had players leave for jobs in the country yep. where they could get work and a coaching gig. Um, and I think in that circumstance, it was, even though everyone was in it together, yeah. it was also every man for himself. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there was an element of, yeah, if you can get a good gig somewhere else, whether it be through football or as part of football with a job on the side... You take it, and yeah. no one's going to hold it it's against not, you. It's not about, it's not about money. It's not about money. Well, it's not about more money. It's actually just about it's about money. Any and money? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. obviously, as a as a Which VFL a footballer, yeah. you the money that you got for playing footy was enormous. Yeah. In that period, it was it was sometimes the difference between there being food on the table and not. Yeah. Particularly in a in a suburb like Collingwood that, that suffered, you know, badly Terribly, during yeah. the depression. Um, but yeah, if you could get something more sustainable, longer term, and better at somewhere else, yeah, it wasn't about making a lot. It was about hey, this could be better for my family, yeah. and I might keep be able going. to keep this. Yeah, yeah, keep us going. But Absolutely. In, in the early twenties, everyone wanted a player who had played under Jock, and the whole Dam and Oak thing, I guess, yeah. sparked it off. So they, they didn't want players leaving for a long time, but I guess the depression changed that. It did, and and I think what happened was that there was a period between. 18 and 23, when we lost a lot of good players. Panham. Uh, Charlie Panham Jr., yeah. um, Bill Toomey Sr., uh, Tom Drummond, uh, Con McCarthy, yeah. Dan Minogue, um, like three of those are captains. Yeah, and, every, and everyone wanted a Collingwood player because they played under Jock, and so yeah. they wanted that style and they wanted yep. that success. And, they, and Collingwood's position had been, if a player had given good service... Then we let it happen. Then we'll let it go and we'll say, good on you, you know, you've done the right thing by us. But increasingly it was happening after three or four or five years and it was key players. And so when Charlie Panham tried to leave at 23, they were like, no. And they forced him out of footy for three years and they went hardball. Absolutely like, no, we've been been pillaged here and we're not going to have that anymore. By the time of the late 20s, it was still very much, I mean, Collier Albert had given what five years of great service by then, but I think that changed everybody's perspective on what you could and could not stop a player from doing. And in that circumstance, the opportunity to better your family situation 
in what was a pretty bleak environment was was a hard one to argue against yeah. realistically. Yeah. So how important was the depression in helping them win four premierships? I don't think the depression helped them no? win four premierships. Um, I think what it did was to cement their place in history. I think the machine, the mythology surrounding the machine is greater because of the social environment in which it happened. Yeah. So Bradman, yeah. Lindrum, Farlap, the other sort of big sporting heroes of that era all achieved or assumed a greater significance in the place in, in with their fans because of the circumstances in which their their feats took yeah. place and i think the same is true of the machine i think it the depression possibly had an influence in terms of the fans yeah. and how and the club how how closely bonded to the club they felt and some of that may have gone through to the players yeah. um it may have helped them in that way but i think it's more that the machine was the perfect team for that time they were strong they were mostly local boys they were hard at it and they played in a way that gave the people of Collingwood a lot to be well possibly for some for some of the people in Collingwood that was all they had yeah at that time was going to the footy on Saturday watching these jocks boys run around and smash the living daylights out of other people living vicariously through these guys when they don't have a lot going that was literally all they had maybe that explains the why there was one little thing wrong and they would they would uh, argue it so badly you know like um, if they lost one game then they'd be they'd have really huge you know things to say about it because it meant so much oh the the fans yeah Yeah. Yeah. it was it was Victoria Park was the epicentre of Collingwood life in those years and that was true almost since Collingwood had been born but it it assumed great it meant more yeah, in those time. in the yeah. in that depression era and everything was amplified you know the significance of Collingwood winning or losing was greater than at any time in its history um, even for a club where i felt that it always meant more during that during the depression era it was it was, you know, it was kind of Bill Shankly at Liverpool, my other support, you know, sporting passion, once said, you know, football, in this case soccer, football isn't a matter of life and death. It's much more important. Yeah, than yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And I think that was true of at Collingwood the time, in, yeah. in the Depression, yeah. um, that it was everything. And the players couldn't have helped, I guess, but absorb some of that. And, you know, when you're thinking of that feeling at Victoria Park in those days, some of that must have, you know, sort of via osmosis made its way through to the players because <laughs> yeah, yeah. they certainly played as if their lives depended on, depended on it. it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, incredibly, 12 players played in those four premierships as well. That seems like a, quite a large number. Yeah, it is. And I think that shows, A, how good the team was, B, how much they stuck together. But it's also the depression, I guess, affecting players didn't want to leave unless they could and there was that stretch of what was six games in a row where the team didn't change yeah yeah like somebody I think Harry Collier once said to me that you know the 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 wages it wasn't just the honour of playing for Collingwood but the wages as well meant that you kind of had to have a broken leg before a player would own up to an injury yeah like you never said anything because you didn't want anybody to know that you might not be 100% yeah yeah yeah. But I get, and also, I think probably you look at a lot of the ages of these guys who played, like the Collier brothers were young. Yeah. And stars, yep. you know. And a lot of them came through at the right time. And that's the other thing, you know, you talk about the influence of Sid when he took over as captain. But there was a, a really nice confluence of events because Sid, um, Sid and Gordon had been playing for a while. And there have been other players like Leo Westcott, who are sort of the unsung heroes who've been around for a while. Harry Chess was. Um, But George Clayton, pardon me, came through the seconds in 25 with Albert and Harry. Um, Bruce Andrew came through in 26. Um, Harry Rumney joined in 26. Um, And you look at Harry Lauder came in 26. Um, McLeod came in 26 or 27. So there were a lot of... There was an influx of players of great talent that came through it at the same time and that transformed 
the nearly teams of 25 and 26 into the into the machine. Yeah. So it was a, there was a great talent flood at the right exactly That's right, the right exactly time. time. And there were more who only just missed out. Who was it? Was it Bob Ross in 29? Oh, Bob Ross, yeah. Won the the, the best the, the second of the seconds. Yeah. yeah. And so you think, you know, there were good players who couldn't get who an just, who just <laughs> couldn't get, get a break. Yeah. You know, because yeah, it was we were an elite team with an an extraordinary and I suspect unprecedented level of continuity yeah. across those four seasons. Yeah. I, I doubt that it's ever been replicated again. Do you have yeah. a favourite of the four premierships? Probably 30, yeah. just because I'd, cause it was a fight. Yeah. 29 was a bit of a procession. 28 was, you know, sort of it, it became pretty clear reasonably early in the season that we were the best team in it yeah. and should win. Um, 30 was a struggle. It was, you know, those, oh, can we get the last bit out of ourselves? And I do love a game where you come from a long way back. And so, yeah, I would love to have seen the 30 grand final. And I think as a result of that, the 30 premierships, probably my favourite because it was the hardest of the four. Um, What about player-wise? Do you have a player from the era you wish you could have watched? All of them. (laughs) Um, I really would have loved to have seen Harry Collier because... Everyone talks about him being the spirit of the team. Um, and Albert Collier. Everybody's memory of Albert is from that the one still photo there is where his shoulder's banged up and he's looking like a real tough guy. <laughs> and he was a real tough guy. Yeah. But when he first played, he was a brilliant footballer. And he, when he returned from Tasmania, he became the protector yep. of the team and the hard man. But before then, he was a brilliantly talented centre-half back. And I would love to have seen him as a 16, 17, 18-year-old, 19-year-old footballer because that's when he was pure. Yep. He hadn't been banged up. He hadn't taken on a role that... That meant he was going to get banged up, yeah. Yeah, he was, and he was a brilliant footballer from all reports. And I think that is often forgotten about him. And I would love to have watched him in full flight as, yeah. a, as a young player just running around catching the ball and booting at miles and busting packs. Yeah. Um, so I, the one thing that, that always surprised, that I kind of forgot about and it surprised me was that, as we talked about, Jock having the flu in 1930. Yeah. So this, the story, what, what's the story behind that? Was he just... He, he, he got the flu early in the week yeah. um, and he was basically not there. For the, for the whole of grand final week. But he was issuing instructions to his assistants about how the team was to be prepared, and how that, what training they were to do that week. Um, and then on match day, uh, he was at home in bed listening to the game on radio yeah, and Bob Rush spoke at half time yeah. um, and sort of implored the guys to, you know, said that Jock would be, you know, suffering at home in bed, you know, listening to their pathetic performance in the first half. (laughs) And that's led some people over time to question whether Jock should be credited with coaching that game. Yeah. Um, So when there was the whole discussion, when Mick Malthouse broke the record and, oh, should Jock have 714 games or should it be 713? (laughs) There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that Jock was the coach that day. Um, The coach on match day didn't actually do a lot anyway. It was all about preparation during the week. And officials often spoke. Harry Curtis, who was a great orator, often spoke to the players before the game or at half-time. So it wasn't unusual. For someone else to... Yeah, for someone else to to jump in and speak. So um, it was an extraordinary situation. But again, that added a little bit of magic and why I think 30 was... Again, it's just... It's the stories. Yeah, it's a bit special. You know, you're, you're going for this record and the most legendary coach in footy history isn't there on the day. Um, it just adds a little extra to it that I love. Um, so in your role as historian, you've got to meet some of the members of the machine? Yeah, look, I did. It, it wasn't actually as historian. It was when I was writing that first book. Oh, okay. They were all still... Some of them were still around then. So, And when the book was launched, um, it was... Yeah, it was a, a very, very big moment in my life when I could have a photo taken with Harry Collier, yeah. Bruce Andrew, Len Murphy and Percy Bowyer, who were four of the machine who were still around. Amazing. And they were awesome guys. Yeah. I just, <clears throat> I interviewed them. I loved them. I spent quite a lot of time with, 
with Bruce Andrew down at his house in Mentone and going through his old stuff and <laughs> they were just ripping blokes. Yeah. You know, love really chat. loved to chat. Um, but not in that kind of crazy old man way that I'll be when I'm their <laughs> age. Um, you know, they were it wasn't actually always easy to get them to talk about themselves. They were much happier talking about their teammates or yeah. Jock or Collingwood as a club or Collingwood as a suburb. But they were just lovely, lovely guys. And, yeah, it's one of the – it makes me wish I'd taken the opportunity to um, interview more of the players from that era who were still around then. Yeah. Um, and I did some, you know, Albie Panham and a few other guys like that, but there were more around and I mm. – you know, in hindsight, I wished I'd expanded it just beyond the 100 greatest yeah. players and taken the chance to interview those who were still around then yeah. um, because the stories that I got from those four were amazing enough as it, as it was. Yeah. That's, the, that's the thing I think we found as well doing this is just the stories that you would never hear about, never read in the paper yeah. or anything are the ones that really make the stories sing yeah you know, aren't they they're the, that that as you said before that background behind what actually happens on the field yeah is so rich it's it's huge and sometimes it's the it's the lesser known players who have the better stories yeah you know they've taken more of it in they haven't spent their whole year you know careers post careers in sportsman's nights yeah. so they just give you the kind of unvarnished yeah. stories and that's what these guys were you know they'd, they'd never been on the the speaking circuit they just talk to you about the days yeah and uh, it was yeah it was it was magical and but it's something that's become the significance of being able to speak to those guys has become more pronounced in the years since and you've realized oh yeah you know that really was a, a special opportunity that i that i was given and that was yeah it's something i've still i've still got the interviews on the old you know, TDK oh, 90 wow. cassettes, yeah, yeah. so I have to get them digitised at some stage, <laughs> yeah. I think. Start your own podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, interviews with old Collingwood players. Oh, 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 we'd like to listen. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so one other thing I noticed was that um, despite winning four in a row, there's not one member of the machine team in the All-Australian uh, AFL team of the century. Yeah, outrage. It's, it's <laughs> ludicrous. I mean, is that a travesty or is it just a fact that Collingwood were a team and that was like it was the perfect team it's a bit of both um, I mean I think there's not funnily enough for all the good players in the team you look at the AFL team of the century and you say well who would who would miss who, out who would, who would, who would he, they replace yeah. in the AFL team of the century the travesty is actually Jack Regan mm. um, oh, Stephen Silvani yeah Stephen Silvani gets fullback of the century and Jack Regan who just that is a travesty. Um, the only other one that I think you could make a really strong case for out of the machine is Gordon Coventry. Yeah. Um, Twelve ninety nine goals. At that um, the time they named the team, he was the all time winning goal kicker. Yeah, um, I mean Lockett's not even here. And it's so that's actually, you know, I think you can make a good case for him. But there's arguments about Lockett um, as it's turned out, and some of the others, you know, in in that case Dunstall and others, but. Yeah, Jack Regan not being in the team of the century, even though he wasn't an integral part of the machine, he only played in the last year. That's just, that's wrong yeah. on so many levels. Um, but yeah, I think you're also right that Collingwood as a team was greater than the sum of, of its parts. Part. And they then. didn't celebrate the individual efforts. Like the, every time Coventry kicked 100, no big deal was made No big it. deal. It was no. the first bloke to kick 100 and it's sort of like, well done. Somebody ran up, shook yeah, his hand. Wren, John Wren would give him a 50. Yeah. That was about it. <laughs> a lazy 50 on the way to the yeah. showers. But yeah, there wasn't a big thing made of it. It was yeah. much more much more about the collective than about individual yeah. achievements. Yeah, really interesting. Um, it is, it's fascinating. Any more well, I think this was probably a longer conversation, but to do with the, the team of the century as well, the, the, um, the fact that Norm Smith is coach over Jock. Yeah. What What do you think about that? I mean, I mean, look, they, does, what does it come down to? The thing I don't know. I can't speak yeah. for for how they made their decision. The way I look at it is that Melbourne had one glorious era, which was that you know that ten years yeah. from fifty five to sixty four. So they are an amazing football team, and Norm Smith is a great coach. No argument. 
38 years um, and eight flags and the fact that he was able to take... Because you look at the four, you're the machine, you think, yeah, four flags, that's good. But you've got two grand finals before it. Yeah. You've got then the second, the, you know, the rebirth of the machine where you win back-to-backs in 35, 36, and then three other grand finals beyond that. Yeah. So you've got 14 years there where Collingwood's in grand finals or thereabouts for most of that time. But then before that, Jock's got premierships in 17 and 19, another grand final in 18, a grand final in 22. It's, I don't know, it, it, I don't know what else you have to do <laughs> to be the coach of the team of the century yeah. than coach for 38 years and 714 games and reinvent yourself several times yeah. over. Yeah, I... We were sort of having this conversation as well. I think his 38 years maybe goes against him in some ways. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. Yeah. It's the it's the longevity of it. Yep. You know, it's however many premierships and grand finals, but in almost 40 years. Yeah. Whereas you compare... That that was my... I mean, obviously, as we said, I don't know what the ins and outs of it was, but that was my sort of it's thinking. In, that's entirely possible yeah. that Norm Smith... You know, was did what he did in a shorter amount of time. Yeah. yeah, and I think Norm Smith, even though Len, his brother, was oh, the greater innovator, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think Norm was perhaps uh, regarded as a as a more innovative coach, whereas Jock, as I said earlier, wasn't renowned for his tactics and strategic acumen, and maybe that counted against him too. But I, I don't know. It's an interesting one in, in terms of numbers. Yeah, I, I think it was a. Yeah, it was an odd decision, I, I felt. Yeah. And not, not putting Norm Smith no, down yeah, no, absolutely. in any way. I mean, his contribution to footy is, is huge. Yeah. But, yeah, as I said, I don't know what more Jock could have done to get a Guernsey there. <laughs> yeah, maybe this and, is a... and don't forget, you know, like Norm Smith, 260-odd games as a as, footballer yeah, exactly. as well. Yeah. And that massive streak of, what, 191 or something. Oh, that many, yeah. Um, so he, yeah, his contribution to football is huge. up there. Maybe they should have done a second... Australian team. Thinking, yeah. Because in, you know, in the NBA, you have your All-NBA team, your second All-NBA team. Yeah, it's not they just the, the first. Yeah. 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 I, I tell you what, I, well, no, except calling a I should always be in yeah, the exactly. first. We, <laughs> we don't want to be in some <laughs> pissant second team. We want to be in the first team. In the real one. There's, yeah. not, there's not one Collingwood in the first no. team. No. One Collingwood yeah, player. Ridiculous. Uh, we wear that as a badge of honour these days. We still rail against it. We're angry about it. But yeah. it's like... No, bugger the rest of you. If you don't want us, we'll, <laughs> we'll just keep we'll going. We'll be fine on, on our own. Yeah, we're fine on our own. There's also, and, and I know we've had lots of conversations about this, people seem to also think that the history of football kind of stops at about 1945, you know, <laughs> 1950. Yeah. Okay, so pulling stuff back further than that, it, get, it gets a bit trickier when it's not in living memory. Absolutely. Yeah. And by the time they were doing Team of the Century, there wasn't anybody around from yeah, from the 20s. and. So when you've got people who played in that era or under Smith, it's much easier to make the case. Yeah. And guys around who were covering footy then. So there is definitely... It's it's why Dick Lee yeah, well, is yeah. not a legend. Yeah. Dick Lee, I mean, on his record, given when he played, oh, he's a freak. Not even he's an given absolute when he played, yeah, freak. Yeah. Um, and you look at his goal-scoring record as a percentage of goals kicked yeah. for the team and everything else at that time. With the injuries. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, big, yeah, big, big name. <laughs> yeah. He's um, yeah. So yeah, you know, yeah. yes, we've we've got we've been dealt many injustices over the years <laughs> at Collingwood. You've managed to de- deal a few out as well, though. So that's we'd right. like to think so. <laughs> um, what's what's next in the works for you? you got another book in the pipeworks? Uh, no books in the works at the moment. Um, I'm pretty focused on trying to tell the player stories and keep going with all the displays and trying to get museum up at Collingwood. Is there, is there a museum at Collingwood? There's not a permanent museum. Yeah. Um, that's something I've... It's only been something I've been angling for for 20 years. So <laughs> um, it'll get there eventually. But we do a lot of displays down at the Holden Centre now and I'm yeah. responsible for those. Are they open to the public? Yeah, yeah, yeah just in the foyer there at the Holden Centre. Um, we've got... This year's one is about Hafey's Heroes, um, which has been... Was, was good fun. But we've also got one on Peter McKenna and we've got one on... Um, the the Collingwood fa- the broader Collingwood family and various other sort of sub things, yeah. but also the Collingwood history website forever, yeah. which I maintain um, is where I'm putting a lot of my energies towards stories and and doing all that research. Our group at the archives do a lot of research on Collingwood players and Collingwood families and all the club history. So that sort of rather than any single book, 
that's something that just generally now is yeah. um, is where my main yeah. focus is. And there'll be more books along the way, yeah. and hopefully <laughs> um, a few, you know, some Collingwood interviews with past players and yeah. stuff if we can get that up again. But it's telling those stories. It's yeah. more generally um, rather than any single book that's next on the agenda. Yeah, yeah. we really appreciate the websites um, the, when they've got so much detail. Oh, oh yeah, and that's that's the the way of getting to most people. Like sad as it is. You know, you do a book like we did the Champions of Collingwood and it just doesn't, don't, not, not as many people buy books these days. I'd rather get the information online. Yeah. So given the amount of work and time and effort and expense that goes into books, um, in a way, if you're trying to share those stories with as many people as possible, then the web is, is a better way of doing it yeah. these days. Yeah. It's a sad fact for somebody who loves books, but it's true. <laughs> Um, well, Michael, thank you so much for coming in today to, yeah. to chat to us. It's been no worries. Great. Thank you, guys. It's um, fun. Keep up the good work. Hit these stories. You too. Books coming because <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of your books we use oh, to help inform us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, my job as Collingwood historian and at the Australian Football Heritage Group, where I'm the president, is to keep the you know disseminating and spreading the message on football history. And so, you guys keep doing what you're doing because it's all part of it and bringing it through. You know a more modern medium like podcasting is is perfect so yeah you know we'll all keep doing yeah, what okay. we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful thanks so much thank you guys you can contact kick to kick by email at kick to kick podcast at gmail.com find us on twitter at kick to kick pod or instagram which is at kick to kick pod as well for our growing list of of all our references, please go to kicktokick.podbean.com slash p slash reference dash list. Thank you very much for listening.